Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lance. It is our goal to build up believers and reach out with God's truth to all people. Now here's today's message with Pastor Michael. If you have a Bible, I hope you do, uh, please turn it to Acts chapter 18. We're going to be doing a message today called Do Not Be Afraid Any Longer, and we're going to be talking about how to overcome fear as we move through the book of Acts. We're going to see Paul, who I would imagine as you've gone through the book of Acts with us, you probably thought he had an S on his chest under his robe, because he's going to city after city after city, getting beat up, threatened, stoned, beat with rods, placed in the stocks singing hymns at midnight, and you might start to think, this guy is superhuman. You might even have said it to yourself or to somebody else. This dude is crazy. I would have hung up my cleats a couple of years back, man. And as you begin to watch Paul in the book of Acts, I think the temptation as a, a average Christian or even someone who's trying to share your faith regularly is I can't live up to this guy. Frankly, sometimes I look at stories in the Bible, and I look at people in the Bible, and I say, Lord, maybe I don't have any business preaching this at all. Because every time I'm in the grocery line, I don't always witness to people. And when I'm passing people in the street, I don't always feel burdened for their souls. What's wrong with me? Can you relate? And sometimes maybe you might even have concluded, maybe... Maybe this Christian stuff is just not for me. I think we all can go through periods of like, like that. And if I were to tell you anything different up here, I think it would just be misleading. Um, there's times that we all go through that. And I will say to you that if you do go through that or you are going through that, you're in very good company. As a matter of fact, most of the major Bible characters, when God called them, said, What? Do you know who you're talking to? I don't know if you knew this, but I'm not good at speaking, and I'm fearful, and I'm from the, the least clan in Israel, and I'm not a mighty man, and God says, yes, you are. You're going to learn to depend on me. And what we're going to find in Acts chapter 18 is something very interesting that maybe you haven't seen before, or maybe it was easy to pass by it. Paul had his times of fear. As a matter of fact, we're going to see an interaction between Paul and the Lord that tells us that Paul was even apparently contemplating not preaching the gospel anymore because his life was being threatened consistently and constantly and he was going from one episode to the next and the next town had more trouble for him and he saw this pattern begin to develop in his life and he's like, Lord, I'm not sure I want to stay on board this train (laughs) And this is how the Bible becomes, I think, even more real to us because we can resonate with what Paul's going through. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's so honest and so truthful. Um, It doesn't sugarcoat anything. It'll challenge us to the core, but it also will comfort us in our souls because it's real. And we all go through ups and downs in this life, Lord. And as believers, with the the amount of zeal that Paul had for the kingdom, we know he went through his own personal crisis in Acts 18. And the beautiful thing is that you comforted him in many different ways. I think the most important thing is you encouraged him by your own presence in his life, a reminder that you were with him. 
and that you would never leave him, nor would you forsake him. So I know that in a room like this, Lord, there are many people going through their own personal trials, and if we aren't facing it now, we will. And I pray that you would speak, that I would get out of your way, that you would add and take away from what's been prepared on paper. And Lord, speak to your people and give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at Acts 18, verse 1. It says, after these things, of course, when you study the Bible, whenever you see a phrase like that, you say, what things? And we see that Paul had just left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, in Athens, he had that standoff with the philosophical elite of his day. We found that Athens, Greece, was the intellectual center of the world. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all uh, came from that region. Philosophy was big. And even though the city was in its decline, it was still well known. And the philosophical intelligentsia of the world did descend upon Athens to debate ideas and things like that. Paul walked through the city, and if you were with us last Sunday, his soul was provoked within him as he saw the city literally under the weight of idolatry. At least 3,000 different altars to gods and goddesses lined the agora or the marketplace. Paul saw it. He saw the various temples. He saw all this idolatry, and his heart was broken and provoked. We talked about the word provoked. It's used in the Old Testament of how Israel provoked God to jealousy with idolatry and cheating on him with other gods. And Paul had the jealousy of God, indeed a godly jealousy, and he was provoked in his spirit. He was angry because he saw people dying under the weight of false gods, swimming in an ocean that could not save them and couldn't produce anything lasting. Now the question that we wrestled with last Sunday was, what did Paul do with that fire? And that fire drove him to share with various people. He shared in the synagogue, in the marketplace, and even with the philosophers. And finally, he was ushered into the Areopagus, the place called Mars Hill, famous for as a court, now had become the court of public opinion or philosophy of religion. And Paul preached to the 30-member Senate. He started off making a connection with one of their altars to an unknown God, remember? And he said, what you worship in ignorance, I'm now going to proclaim to you. And starting with creation all the way to the judgment or the consummation, Paul preached that God made the world, everything in it. He's not housed in temples. He's not represented by things made with human hands as though he needed anything. In him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And then Paul moved from those quotations and he moved into the resurrection and he said, God is now making a declaration He's declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent because he has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. He's given evidence of this by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. When people heard of the resurrection, some sneered and mocked him. Others said, we'll hear more, and still others believed. And Paul left. He departed from another place with a mixed reaction. And right before he went into the Areopagus, you remember they were calling him a babbler. What does this idle babbler have to say? And they were using Athenian slang for he's a seed picker. He parrots people's ideas, but he doesn't really have any substance to him. And he got mocked and he got beat up physically in some places, mocked verbally in others. And the old rhyme on the playground is sticks and stones may 
break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But that's a lie. He was human. Sometimes we remember things said to us cross uh, in third grade. We still remember somebody said this terrible thing to us. We hold on to verbal assault. And Paul is getting assaulted verbally, not only from Greeks, but from Jews and people who were sneering at him, calling him an idiot, the once proud Pharisee on top of the world is now counting all things a loss compared to the surpassing glory of knowing Jesus Christ is Lord. He said, I consider it done. I'm willing to go through it because I want his name honored. And now Paul moves from Athens to Corinth, about a 50-mile trip, and he's got, I'm sure, a heavy heart because even though he has boldly spoken the word once again, he's been mocked and ridiculed. And he moves 18.1 from Athens and he goes to Corinth. There's a story about a famous um, guy and he goes to the chiropractor and he begins to tell, uh, not the chiropractor, he goes to the, who's the guy that uh, talks, uh, talks to you about your mental condition? Psychologist, thank you. Third service, sorry. Psychiatrist. Why I said chiropractor? Because my back hurts right now. But anyway, so, so he goes to the psychiatrist. And he says, Doc, I'm depressed, I'm downcast. He says, I'm really at the end, everything's dark and dreary in my life. What should I do? And the psychiatrist says, you know what, there's this guy, his name, I'll make up his name, is Smith. And he's big on the nightlife here, and every, he's, the, he's the party man, he's the center of attraction. Everybody loves being around this guy. Maybe you should track this guy down, find Smith, and hang around him, and I'm sure he'll rub off on you. And he looks at the psychiatrist and says, I am Smith. You see, sometimes when we think that people don't go through what we go through, it's not true. We all go through ups and downs. We all have times of fear and difficulty. The question is, can we face our fears and can we overcome them by the grace of God? There's a story about the Greek army fighting the Persians. The uh, the arrows were flying so thick through the sky that a soldier said to a general, he said, their arrows are so many that they darken the sky. And the general looked at the fearful soldiers and said, then we'll fight in the shade. You see, we need to continue to fight the good fight, folks. And it is going to be a fight, but it is a good fight. See, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And sometimes life just gets hard. And Paul had his moments. In Ephesians 6, 18 through 20, he makes a prayer request. He shares the seventh piece of armor which is often ignored, and he says these words, Ephesians six eighteen through 20. He says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Pray for fellow brothers and sisters on the battlefield, and pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I might speak boldly as I ought to speak. Isn't it interesting that the man that had so much boldness, when you, when you saw his written down prayer request, he actually asked for boldness. Because he was human. Because I'm sure when he went to these cities, he probably thought, you know what, Lord, can I take a little break from preaching the gospel? I'm getting beat up in every place I go. So he comes to Corinth. I'm going to show you a couple of things about Corinth, if we can throw that up on the screen there, Tim. 
He comes on this 50-mile trek, and he's on his second missionary journey, and he comes now, he's, he's in Europe, and he comes to the area of Corinth. And so this is the Acropolis in Corinth, and the famous uh, icon on top of the elevated city, 2,000 feet above sea level, was the temple to Aphrodite. She was the Greek goddess of love. Her name in, in the Roman gods and goddesses is uh, Venus. And she had a thousand temple prostitutes that served her at her beck and call. There were both female and male prostitutes, and they would descend upon the lower city. This is the lower city. You can see this from the Acropolis looking down. There are many ruins of uh, ancient Corinth. It was a city with a lot of idolatry, much like Athens, but this particular city was known more not for its intellectual prowess, but for its immorality. As a matter of fact, Corinth was the ancient Las Vegas. You went here, it was kind of a navy town. When the population swelled, there were probably at least 500,000 people that would move through the city. Corona has 150,000, that'll give you an idea. Lots of people, lots going on, lots of idolatry. Here's the Temple of Apollo you can see in the distance. This is the ruins of the Temple of Octavia, dedicated to Octavia. And all kinds of different marketplaces and things being sold along here because it was a melting pot for culture. So you had people coming in by ship, and they were bringing different things to sell. You can see a little mini theater there that was set up for people to watch little performances. Here is called the Perian Fountain. It was actually a place of worship. There's water there today. But you could go here and you could worship the gods. Among the gods in Corinth was the god Asclepios or Asclepion. He was the God of healing. And when you went, or went into his temple, you were asking Asclepion to heal you of your diseases. He was represented by a pole with a snake wrapped around it. And if you've seen modern medical insignias, they go all the way back to this Greek goddess, or this Greek god. So people would come to the fountains and they would worship the false gods. And Paul would have been seeing all this stuff. Here's a Bema seat. We're going to see at the end of our account that Paul stands before Gallio, the leader. This is what is a Bema seat or an elevated platform from which judgments are made. And in your Bible, the Bible tells us we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema, not to be judged for our sin, but to be given rewards. This is an inscription from Erastus, who was apparently like a city manager. He helped build the road in this location of Corinth. This is an ancient inscription. He's mentioned in Romans 16.23, is working with the Apostle Paul. This is something that was found that was over the synagogue in Corinth. It was found dating back from the 1st century BC to the 1st century AD, about the time of Paul, and it says the synagogue of the Hebrews in Greek. Uh, so here's Corinth's major, uh, for all that it was known for, it was known for an isthmus. An isthmus was a landmass that connected two pieces of land that helped captains avoid a long trip around the southern tip of Greece, and they could move through the isthmus through this little four-mile stretch of landmass and take a shortcut with their ship. This this uh, sea uh, voyage was so dangerous that a lot of people lost their lives going around the southern tip of Greece. So this isthmus was created. And what would happen is if you had a light enough ship, you could put your ship on some ancient trolley system, rollers if you will, and slaves would pull your vessel across the isthmus. You would avoid the long trip uh, around the southern tip and you would be able to stay in the city and enjoy the life that was offered there. 
So this was, came to be such a marker in this time that they had the Isthmian Games in Corinth, second only to the Olympic Games. Every two years, they hosted these games. Right now, how many of you are watching the Winter Olympics right now? So you know that uh, Olympics, uh, they train, and they train, and they train, where every two years, they hosted this. And athletes would perform, and there would be gambling, and nightlife, and prostitution, and they even had a commercial on television, whatever you do in Corinth stays in Corinth. <laughs> and so people thought, this is the place to throw off all your you know, your morals and go live it up and, and, and have your party here. Here's a picture of slaves pulling ships on the isthmus to move them across. And this is a modern canal that was, it was built over time, but see how narrow it is. It go, actually goes through the isthmus where ships are actually pulled through this little canal to save time about uh, avoiding the long trip, as I mentioned. Okay, thank you, Tim. So here's where Paul is. He's moved into the city corruption, all kinds of difficulty. And he writes in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, And when I came to you, brethren, writing back to this church that was established, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined, I resolved or decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And when I was with you, says Paul to the Corinthians, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. It appears that when Paul came to Corinth, he was kind of at the end of himself. He had taken on the philosophers. He had come to Corinth and he made a decision. He had resolved in his mind. He purposed, I'm going to stick to the message of the cross. And to the Greek mind, the cross was foolishness. To the Jews, it was a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it was foolishness. But Paul says, if we trust in Christ, to those who know him, Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God. But people in Corinth, just like in modern Corona, said, what can a man dying on a cross mean to my life? Well, he isn't just a man, first of all. He's the God-man. The one dying on that cross is God. He came into this world and he lived the perfect life you cannot live and died on that cross as the innocent sacrifice, shed his blood for you. And the Greek mind said, that's ridiculous. They were big on wisdom. They, they thought, you know what, that, that message really doesn't matter to me. And Paul was getting beat up. And William Booth said, while women weep, I'll fight. While little children go hungry, I'll fight. While men go to prison, I'll fight. While there is a drunkard left, where there remains one lost dark soul, I'll fight, I will fight to the very end. And that was Paul. But he came in troubled, fearful, uh, trembling. And he said, you know what, I'm going to stick to the message of the cross. And he's in this city, F.W. Farrar pictured, uh, imagine market stock with many cosmopolitan goods, Arabian balsam, Egyptian papyrus, Phoenician dates, Libyan ivory, Babylonian carpets, Cilician goat's hair, Lyconian wool, Phrygian slaves. It was a melting pot, but Paul saw the city in a different way. He saw it as a strategic way to get the gospel out because he figured if all these people were coming here from different lands and they were selling things and people were going back, this could be a great place to preach the gospel. As a matter of fact, of the two most important cities that Paul ever visited, Ephesus and Corinth are the top two. Because they, he had the chance to make the most impact on people with uh, the crowd swelling up to 500,000 people. And so to Corinthianize meant to practice harlotry. A Corinthian girl was a synonym for a prostitute 
Corinth was the vanity fair of the ancient world, and to be a Corinthian-type person was to be a party animal. That was first century Corinth. So here's Paul, and he's in the city, and he is addressing the needs of the people. He writes back to, first, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and says, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Listen. But su- su- and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Paul says, do you not know? That your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. If you've studied First and Second Corinthians, you know that Paul was dealing with a lot of immorality in the church. People became Christians, but then they were tempted to go back to the temple of Aphrodite and say, well, you know what, I have a need and, and why not fulfill my need with the girls up there? And Paul says, no, you can't do that anymore. Do you not know that when you sleep with a prostitute, You become one with her. The Greeks were famous for trying to separate what you did with your body from your spiritual life. So they said, you know, there's a duality of the soul. So you could do what you want with your body and you can still be spiritual. And Paul says, that's a lie. Your body houses the Holy Spirit. How it all works, I can't tell you for sure. But your body is the temple of the Spirit of the living God. Your behavior with your body does matter. And so Paul wrote back to the city and he even gave them an Olympic analogy. He said, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way that you may get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will perish. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. You see, Paul used what was happening in the city to tell people, look, you got to, these Olympics you watch every two years, you got to see your Christian life like you're an Olympic athlete. You don't eat six donuts to get ready for your skating performance. It's fine, I'll be good. No, you train, and you train, and you train some more. Why? So that in that one moment of time, you can perform to your peak you can hit the jump or go around the, the little barrier with a ski slalom or whatever you're doing. And Paul says that's an analogy to your Christian life. You have to train to be effective as a Christian. If you read your Bible every two weeks when you happen to come to church, believe me, you're not going to win the race. The Christian life is like training for an event. And you're always in training. Yes, God's grace is sufficient for us. But we need to be constantly uh, immersed in the things of God. So how does the Lord encourage Paul's faith? Look at verse 2. And he, Paul, found a certain Jew named Aquila, and uh, likely he was already a believer, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. This is the famous Aquila and Priscilla. Because Claudius, here's why they ended up in Corinth, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome He came to them. So the Roman historian outside the Bible, Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus, who was the chief secretary to the emperor Hadrian, had access to the imperial records. He's writing in a section uh, on Emperor Claudius, who ruled from AD 41 to 54, and he said, 
Because the Jews at Rome caused continuous disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S, and the historians that look at this say that's a variant spelling of the name Christ. So a secular historian writing during this time said there were all kinds of instigations happening in Rome at this time, and it was all around this Crestus individual or preaching of Christ. And the emperor heard about it, Claudius heard about it, and he got tired of hearing the disturbances. So he kicked every Jewish person out of Rome. This is documented in secular history. If you would like to listen to this message, or if you would like more information about the ministry of Living Truth, please visit our website at livingtruthcorona.org. That's livingtruthcorona.org. What we pick up in Acts chapter 18 at verse 8 is that Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. All of his household did. They were being baptized. And, you know, Paul was getting a sense that whenever there was a positive result in a city, especially when you think about the synagogue leader in a city getting saved and baptized and making a public declaration, Paul knew what was coming. Uh, the track record was Paul became a punching bag. The messenger definitely was was taking a beating in certain places. And, and he had to go to bed that night thinking, at least lying in bed, probably not sleeping, thinking, you know, Lord, it's probably coming again. And in Acts 18.9, I, I think that this is going to be really an encouragement for all of us. If it's not now for you, it will be. The Lord said to Paul, Acts 18.9, in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer. Go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. Don't be afraid anymore. You know, so much of our world, folks, is ruled by fear. And uh, Paul, you know, the fact that the Lord came to him and, and said these words means that Paul is afraid. I think it's certainly right here in the text, don't be afraid, probably means Paul was afraid. When Jesus says, don't worry, and don't worry about what you're going to eat and drink and wear and so forth. It's because we worry. When the encouragement is, I am with you, it's because that settles it for all of us. I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. But let's face it, folks, we don't always feel like God is there. Sometimes in our humanity, our emotions are not the best barometer of things. You know, what we need to do is when we're feeling lonely or alone or poured out or dry or like we can't go on another moment. We need to rest on promises, not emotions. See, emotions can be cool and and it's wonderful to experience good emotions and a sense of intimacy, closeness with the Lord, the beauty of worship, prayer. But you can't always go by emotion. What you have to go by is fact. You have to let fact be the train that pulls you down the track. You got to put emotions as the caboose. And what I mean by that is that when you're not feeling it, quote unquote, it's time to stand upon the promise. I'm with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Therefore, don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. 